Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you who are worshiping online with us as well. And uh, how many of us are excited about Christmas? Yes, you excited? It is 26 days till Christmas, fair warning, 26 days from today. Christmas will be literally on us. And as I mentioned in the prior service, I think my wife and I, we feel this is the most we've ever been prepared for Christmas because of COVID. You're kind of stuck inside anyway. You might as well get ready, right? So we're ahead of the curve. Now, this morning, I am beginning the sermon series that's entitled Incarnation, Incarnation, and that'll be the theme as we move throughout this Christmas season. Now, if I had to give a title to this sermon, it would be Incarnation, Christmas Without the Nativity. Christmas Without the Nativity. Now, I want to qualify that by saying that I love everything about what the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke teach us about the nativity. I love them both. I love the idea of the shepherds, the magi, the angelic host, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, all of the things that make the idea of Christmas what it is that looks so perfect on those overly priced Hallmark cards. But in the midst of all of that, what we need to understand is, is that the nativity is only mentioned twice in the entire Bible. It's mentioned at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's be mentioned at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And once you leave those two nativity settings, here's what's shocking. Christmas is never mentioned again. There are no other Newer Testament writers that reference the virgin birth. None of them do that. No one ever references again Bethlehem, Jesus being born in a manger. None of that is ever mentioned again. It's almost as though the Newer Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit forget about Christmas. But what is mentioned in every single book in the Newer Testament, whether by sideways reference or direct mention, is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Every book in the Newer Testament somehow references that, if not overtly states it. If I were to have written the Newer Testament and I was one of the inspired writers, I would have at least mentioned several times in my letter the idea of Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a huge deal. But what's stunning is the Newer Testament writers never mention Christmas again. But I want to qualify that a little bit in this way, that the Newer Testament writers are well aware of Christmas. And it kind of seeps out in different ways, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. What they end up doing with Christmas is although they never mention it, they seem to somehow add it, but you got to know what to look for. And when you see it, it's found in a lot of places. But again, 
These newer Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit never come out and mention Christmas ever again. Now, I've kind of used this analogy in order to help us understand it. I have a dear friend of mine who's a developer here in Charlottesville. He actually worships at a different church. He and I have done ministry together uh, for over a decade. We've done ministry together, different projects, and some of them weekly. But as a friend of mine, I bumped into him at Lowe's. We hadn't seen each other in months because of COVID. And then I ended up calling him to ask him a couple of questions that I knew he would have the answer to. And in the midst of that, we caught up on each other's families. Like, how are you doing? My kids all know his kids. Fran knows his wife, all of that. And near the end, I just asked him a question because he's actually developed some very large neighborhoods in and around Charlottesville over the past 10 to 15 years. And when I asked him about the housing market and building a house right now, he changed his tone and he became very pragmatic. Here's what he said. He said, Pete, someone can build a house right now, but they're going to spend 20% more than they want to. He said, the reason for that is the subs are hard to find and materials even harder to find. And so he went into this explanation of the housing reality, but he did it in an unemotional way where he kind of peeled back all the fluff. He removed kind of all the stuff that's periphery and he went right to the core of it. And his last statement to me was this. If you wanted to build a house right now, Pete, I'd tell you, don't do it. Like, wow. Now, you got to know my friend. He's very emotional. He's one of the best storytellers I've ever, I've ever met. If you sit at a table with him and he begins to tell a story, everyone listens. He's a passionate person. He's a romantic person. But when it comes to building a house now, he's got very pragmatic ideas. By the way, that's how New Testament writers look at Christmas. They never mention it again, but there are certain realities of it that they do talk about, and this, by the way, is the baseline for Christmas. It's the incarnation. So what I want to do this morning is I want to very systematically take us through the Newer Testament because there are things we absolutely need to know about Christmas as followers of Jesus. Again, I'm not against Mary and Joseph I'm not against the magi, the star, the shepherds, and the manger. I love all of it, and I'll be preaching on those for the next two Sundays. But please understand that the Newer Testament writers passed over all of it. What they focused on was the incarnation. And if you were to look at the incarnation, you would discover that these Newer Testament writers speak of Christmas in a radical, transformational profound and truth-filled concept that is never named in the Bible. We call it the incarnation. They didn't. But they speak about it in thorough fashion. If you were to look up incarnation in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, you'd discover that the definition is this, invested with bodily and especially human nature and form. The word incarnation isn't spoken much when we are in conversation. Maybe once in my life I've heard someone say about a person, they are the incarnation of something like gracefulness. Now we'd probably say the personification of gracefulness. But when I think about incarnation, I can't forget 
a sermon that was preached here 18 years ago by a friend of mine who I knew from Princeton. He was at the seminary there studying, and he came here and preached on a Wednesday night, and it was during Christmas, and the title of his sermon was God with Meat On. Incarnation, carne, meat. God with Meat On was the title of his sermon. But how New Testament writers speak of it is this way. God takes on flesh. God takes on flesh. You would have thought that Jesus' best friend, John, when he wrote his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would begin or would have begun his gospel talking about Mary and Joseph and the Magi and the Christmas story. But at first swipe, it seems like he doesn't mention Christmas. In John chapter 1, verse 1, here's what he writes. In the beginning was the Word. Where Matthew and Luke at the very beginning are talking about Christmas, John says in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, capital W, was with God. And the Word, capital W, was God. Now, I'll be dealing with this more in depth this coming Tuesday night in the in-depth as we move towards Christmas. By the way, that'll be live-streamed as well as here in person. But at Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, I'm going to do an in-depth look at what John talks about in John chapter 1, verse 1. But putting it lightly now, what John says is in the beginning was the Word. If you've ever read the first three verse or the three first three words of the Bible, you know that Genesis chapter one starts this way. In the beginning, next word, God. Here, when John thinks about Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word for word is a Greek word, logos. To the Greeks, they looked at the world and everything worked together and they couldn't figure out how. So there's some mystery force behind it all that holds it all together and guess what that's called? Word, logos in Greek. There's this logos that's behind everything that holds it together. In the Jewish mind, logos is when God speaks and creates. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did God create it all? He spoke words. So God to them is word. So when John begins his gospel, and he has the nativity in mind, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then in John chapter 114, here's what John writes. And the word became incarnate, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What we discover at the beginning of John's gospel is earth shattering and we have to catch this. He teaches us that the word, which is Jesus, becomes flesh. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, he teaches us that the word existed before Christ was born. This is his point. 
that Jesus was an active, participatory part of the Trinity before he was born. And at the beginning, he was there. When God spoke everything into existence, the word was present. Jesus was there. Jesus was alive. He just had not yet taken on flesh. So think about it. Jesus was real before he became real in our world. You see, the incarnation is what it is because God in Christ takes on flesh and he takes his place in becoming fully human. You see, if you peel back all the layers of Christmas, that's what it's about. It's about Jesus who eternally existed in the past and eternally exists into the future, takes on flesh, and he becomes a full-fledged human being. What fascinates me is I want you to notice that when Jesus becomes human, he comes on the scene as an adult. I'm sorry, does not arrive as an adult. Notice how Jesus' life happens. There's conception, there's infancy, there's him being a teenager, him growing into an adult, becoming a carpenter, and then becoming a rabbi. Jesus was fully human, fully God, but fully human. He doesn't show up as an adult. He takes the entire human journey. This is important. You see, he, Jesus, God in the flesh, pre-existed the incarnation, pre-existed the crib in Bethlehem. Now, if it's true, Jesus must mention it. Maybe the other Newer Testament writers don't mention it, but Jesus must because if he eternally existed prior to becoming human, he's going to have to share that somewhere. And lo and behold, in John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, Jesus is in an argument with some of the leaders of the temple about who he is. And when they begin to press him, Jesus responds by saying this, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That is shocking. Jesus, standing in the temple, says to the Jewish leaders that before your hero of faith, Abraham, was, I was. And the way he phrases it makes them reach down, pick up stones to kill him. Verse 59 says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I want you to notice what Jesus says. He says to the Jewish leaders, I was here before Abraham. And the way he phrases it makes them furious. He says, before Abraham was born, what are the next two words? I am. And every Jew knew what Jesus was saying. Because in the Older Testament, when Moses went to lead the people in the Exodus out of bondage, Moses says to God, what God are you? Who should I say is calling me? And what's God's response? I am. 
The I am that I am is sending you. And so when Jesus says to those Jewish people before Abraham was born, I am, he is declaring that he is eternally God, past, present, and future, and they make a move to stone him. Then we pick up John chapter 17, verse 5. And in it, Jesus is praying for himself as he's moving towards his execution. And he says this, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus is saying emphatically that he preexisted the creation of the world and that he and his heavenly Father were in triunity. They were in relationship with each other. In the incarnation is where he appears in the world. So Jesus was well aware of his preexistence. How do the rest of the Newer Testament writers handle this? I want us to read out loud Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I want all of us to read this out loud. Are you ready? Those of you who are worshiping with us online, read this out loud with us. Again, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let's read it out loud. Ready? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 1.15, we just read it, says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You will notice oftentimes that it's announced that Jesus is the firstborn. If you were to understand that in Greek, you would discover that firstborn is the ancient Greek word prototokos, and it can describe either priority in time or supremacy in rank. That's where we get the word prototype. It's the first. But in the Jewish mind, it's not just first in timing. It's first in supremacy. It's the greatest. But I want you to notice what it says in Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. As a dad, I have three children. I have a son. His name is Peter. He is my firstborn. And I have two daughters. Now, Peter, being my firstborn, has always been an interesting young man. At the age of 13, he was called to be a theologian. 
Try to explain that to your friends. At the age of 13, he read a book that I was studying, and he felt the call of God. Not only that, he kind of looks like me, the poor kid. And in the calling to be a theologian, his prayer is he will actually make money helping people think about God someday. I love him, and I'm proud of him. And there are times where people will walk up to me and say to me, Peter is definitely your son. He looks like you. He has a similar calling. He does similar things. There are times where people will walk up to my son and say, you are your father's son. And both of us enjoy that. But Colossians 1.19 says this, for God was pleased to have all, all, his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus. I want to read that again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Let me be blunt. Peter is not that to me. He's my firstborn. We have a lot of similarities. but We have differences too. Peter is a natural fly fisherman. I'm a spin caster. My son can pick up instruments very easily. He's a musician. In the past, he's played drums. He's played the piano. He's sung vocals. And me, I played slide trombone. It's something I've tried to hide from our church for years. I had to practice and practice and practice. It just came to him musically natural. What would be accurate to say is that my son and I are similar. We are not the same. But God said that he was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. They are the same. When Jesus preexisted in the Godhead and then through incarnation stepped into our world, Jesus is fully God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul goes on to write in the same book that we've been reading from, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, capital D, lives how? In bodily form. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We have to understand what the Newer Testament writers are teaching us about Christmas. What's being taught to us is that God fully became human. God the Father fully invested all that he was and poured himself into human frame as the word became flesh. That's huge. I'm not saying I understand it all. I'll be totally honest. But in the midst of it, I know what Jesus was saying about himself before Abraham was, I am. I understand what the Newer Testament writers are making us understand about Christmas, and that is the incarnation is everything. 
It is everything. Jesus is fully God. If I were to think again about my kids, I would think about one of my daughters who if you took my wife's picture at the age of seven and my daughter's picture at the age of seven and you put them side to side, you'd say they're twins. This is the same person. Fran loves that. It's like her greatest moment as a mom. But the thing of it is, they're not the same. And the fullness of Fran does not dwell in my daughter. What's being brought to us is so unique and so profound, it blows our minds. The other thing that I've noticed, that more often than not, when these Newer Testament writers mention the idea of Jesus being fully God, the next thing they talk about is him sacrificing himself for our sins. They go together. They go together. And I'll be honest with you, if I were to write the story of God, God probably wouldn't have become fully human anyway, but let's say that would have taken place. What happened to Jesus would have never been in my story. God in the flesh, he would have been absolutely victorious. He would have never suffered. He would have had the most peaceable life. And yet, whenever the Newer Testament writers think about Christmas and think about the incarnation, God fully pouring himself into human form, the next thing they talk about is sacrifice and suffering for the sins of humankind. Colossians 1.20, which we read earlier, says that Jesus was making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. He provided purification for sins and then he sat down next to the Father. How do we put feet to our faith with this? What does it look like as we now begin that Advent journey towards Christmas? Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7 brings us some instruction. Here's what Paul writes to the Philippian church about the incarnation. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Many versions of the Bible put it this way, that he did not think his equality with God was something to be grasped, to violently and passionately hold on to. He literally let it slip away. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. What a strange outworking of the incarnation. If I had given pastoral advice about what the incarnation should do to us, I would say it should make our worship vibrant, and it should. It should make our salvation secure, and it should. It should help us to view humankind as being elevated because if God literally becomes one of us, it elevates all of creation, and specifically humanity gets elevated because God became one of us. But Paul doesn't look at it that way. He says that when we think about the incarnation, 
it should affect how we treat others. That's amazing to me. That thinking about how Jesus gave up his advantage as being next to God in heaven. And although we listened to him pray in John 17 that that day would return, he had given that up and he became human and he suffered and he gave up his life. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'd like you to take a moment and close your eyes in God's presence. I know normally at Christmas, when we close our eyes, we picture the nativity, the shepherds, the sheep, the inn with no room, the baby being laid in a manger, the star above, the magi, the shepherds, all of that wonderful stuff. But I believe that the Newer Testament writers pass that all over for a reason because they don't want us to be caught up in that. They want us to know about the incarnation. They want us to know that what Christmas is really about is God becoming human, God becoming one of us, and God the Father fully pouring himself out. So with your eyes closed, I want you to think about the truth of Jesus being the incarnation of God. I want you to think about God in the flesh. Think about God with meat on. Think about the peculiarity, the singularity, the uniqueness, and the unrepeatable reality of Jesus being God in the flesh. God, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you that when we peel back Christmas, we find God in the flesh.